Well, today we're returning to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the Jesus principle. Father God, such a, such a wonderful song to set up as, as we dive into this passage. You, you've been faithful to us. You've been good to us. And your faithfulness, we know, is not dependent upon our own good works, of us reaching up to you, of us constantly meeting the standard. Your faithfulness is based upon your own covenant promises that were bought with your own blood on the cross. And so, Lord, we can sing a song like that because your faithfulness is sweet to us. You don't look the other way when when we mess up. You actually draw closer to us in those moments. Your grace is sufficient, and it's, it's, like a, it's like waves of grace just keep crashing upon us, washing us, and, and cleaning us, and, and just powering down any sin that we build up against it. Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your steadfast love. Lord, as we look at a passage that says so much about who you are, and how you relate to the Word, and thus how we're supposed to read the Bible and understand you, and, and that all these things are then to transform our lives. As we dive into a text that in many ways is very direct, it's very plain and easy to understand, but it's so difficult to live out. There's a weight to this text. Father, as we step into this, we just ask for your Spirit to come and really do some unique work today. May your word, may this particular passage, these four verses, may they transform us today. Transform how we think about your word and and think about you and think about how we read and then apply your word and how we're transformed by your teachings. And so, Lord, may we walk away changed today. So we invite your spirit to come. Give us eyes to see. Give us faith where we lack. Give us encouragement where we need it. Just be present with us today. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of red-letter Christians? This is kind of a a movement that attempts to prioritize the red letters and sometimes maybe only follow the red letters. And by red letters, what I mean is, is that in some translations of the Bible, there's some red letters in there. Maybe some of the Bibles that you have today. All the Bibles, you know, typically the, the, all the words are, are written with black ink and they're all black. But then sometimes in some Bibles, the words of Jesus are in red. Now, certainly we should give weight to Jesus' word, right? Like here we are on the Sermon on the Mount and we've kind of pitched this at you as, hey, this is the greatest sermon by the greatest preacher ever. So certainly there's weight to Jesus' word. However, the the red-letter Christians, they have to deal with a text like 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So what that passage means is that all Scripture, all 66 books that have been universally recognized by the church for over 2,000 years, all of that is Scripture. All of that is breathed out by God. All of that comes from inside of Him. It's inside of Him, and then it comes out as the Word of God. Now, 
Nothing inside of him is erroneous or false or untrue. Therefore, we have this doctrine here that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Nothing in your Bible is erroneous in the original autographs because it comes from inside God. But the key is is that that entire book fits in that category. Leviticus, Sermon on the Mount, all of it is the Word of God. Another problem with the red-letter approach is that it, it attempts to really value these countercultural teachings of Jesus, like on the Sermon on the Mount. But what it ends up doing is it then diminishes all these other scriptures. So inevitably what the red-letter Christians do is they, they kind of cherry-pick and choose the ones, the passages they want to follow and then reject ones that they don't want to follow. And to be frank, from my perspective, I think this movement has always been more interested in advancing a political agenda as it is in faithfully following the Lord. But the question for us today is, is would Jesus approve the red-letter approach? The the man who actually spoke all those red-letter words, would he approve of that approach? Would he approve of pitting his words against the rest of the Scriptures? Did, Did Jesus diminish somehow the Old Testament? Did he disregard the teachings of the Old Testament and only esteem what he said? Did he reject all the Old Testament and would Jesus approve of the red-letter approach? Now, I, I can't overstate the importance of the passage that we're going to study today, especially for today. This passage is essential to understanding Jesus. It's essential to understanding the Scriptures as a whole. Therefore, it, it has implications for God's will for your life. It has implications for your own spiritual health. Jesus is going to establish a principle here. And this principle is essential for your salvation, for your, uh, for your spirituality, walking with the Lord. This passage is essential for you to understand what it means to be a disciple, a faithful follower of the Lord. Now, this passage is vital because it speaks to a couple of impulses. And the first impulse is one we're probably going to get easier than the second. But we live in this secular age. And in this secular age, there's an impulse to diminish or disregard the Old Testament. Like we read stuff from Leviticus and we're like, uh, that's weird. Okay, move on. And, and there's this impulse to say, okay, the Old Testament is hard and it's mean. Yet the New Testament, it's good and it's gracious. Moses is outdated. He's full of anger. Jesus is merciful and full of love. And so we tend to rush past the Old Testament and elevate the New Testament. However, historically, there's also been another impulse that I think this passage speaks to. Historically, there's been times where where Christians have been the majority in a culture, and what they've said is, hey, we need to just transfer all this Old Testament law immediately into how we work out our ethics, how we work out our laws, we're to build it all on there, and they do it even though Christ, as if Christ has not changed things, or as if Christ has not come. They function as if like we're in Israel 3,000 years ago today and they just transfer uh, these Old Testament teachings into today. So there's this impulse to fully implement the Old Testament law as if Jesus had never come. I know we're kind of stepping down into some ideas here, but in the interest of time, I don't want to chase this rabbit too far. But I think a better place to land on some of this is where the early Baptists, especially the early American Baptists, landed in this place for where they advocated as Christians for religious liberty. Now, the way they did that is they said that they would like a healthy separation 
between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the state. Are you tracking that image? The garden versus the wilderness. Would you rather live in the garden or would you rather live in the wilderness? What, what they were saying is, is, listen, we're not fearful of the church. We're fearful of the state. We want to live in this garden of this church, worshiping God according to our convictions, working this out how we want to, living as free people according to our religious conscience. And we don't want the state to force us into believing and saying certain things and only functioning as Christians a certain way. So they were early advocates for the Bill of Rights, which essentially established this where there's no established church that forces us all to worship a certain way. I think that's the ideal settlement. And, and listen, I'm not naive enough to think that there's the separation of church and state is always these clean categories. This can be messy discussions. We have over 250 years of Supreme Court <laughs> rulings on all this of, of how we're supposed to work it out. But, but that's, a, that's a better settlement, if you will, than these secular impulses where they totally diminish and disregard the Old Testament or these religious impulses where, where they just try to transfer the Old Testament into the new, irrespective of the new covenant dispensation. What we need today is a Jesus principle. Look with me at, at Matthew 5, verse 17, and I want you to first see that, I want you to understand that Jesus is the aim. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if you're new with us today, we're in this study on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Jesus' teaching to his disciples about discipleship. So the followers of Christ, this is how to follow Christ. And, and if you're with us on Easter, we began with the Beatitudes, and it's this beautiful opening to the sermon where, where he lays out this, these, these countercultural, paradoxical ways where the followers of Christ are to live for the kingdom that is to come. We're, we're to be citizens as a coming kingdom. It's not the way the world works here. But we're to live differently than the world as citizens of a kingdom to come. Now, when I hear that, I think, okay, that means I'm supposed to back away and separate from the world. Jesus actually meant something different. We're, we're to be distinct. We're to be different. But we're not to separate from the world. We're, we're to permeate the world. We're to permeate the world as salt and light. And that's what we looked at last week, this image of salt. We're to be salt in a, in a world that is morally decaying. We're to be that preservative element. We're to be the light, like a city set on a hill or, or like a lamp, where we shine the light of the gospel into these dark places. And people who are in these dark places, they look up and desire something that is more glorious. So we're to be in the world, not of the world. Now, now where Jesus is going to go after this passage, he's going to go into all these ethical uh, uh, teachings on things like anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and love of enemies. But before he gets to that, he stops and he inserts this, this teaching here about how he relates to the law. Now, now, to get really technical here, this is a hermeneutical principle is what Jesus is talking about. Now, you might think, what in the world does that mean? Hermeneutics is it's just the, the, the study of God's Word, but, but more specifically, it's, it's how do we understand things? How do we interpret God's Word? How, do, how are we supposed to read the Bible? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us a principle for how to understand and read the Bible. But, but it's more than hermeneutics. 
It is something technical, and it's this principle about Jesus and how he views himself and how he relates to the Bible. But that then filters down into how we think about Jesus. This is Jesus on Jesus and how we understand him and how we live that out and and how uh, that applies to the rest of our lives. So it's a principle. It's a hermeneutical, theological principle that Jesus is developing, but it gets down into our real lives. Where his principle begins is, is Jesus mentions the law and the prophets. Now, if you see that in verse 17, what Jesus is talking about there is all of the Old Testament. This was just the common way of referencing all of the Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying is, is he's teaching about how he related to or how he interpreted the Old Testament. So these red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, verse 17 is in red letters, and it's about how to read the Old Testament. This is Jesus' hermeneutical principle on how to interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. Now, the, the first part of Jesus' principle is that he says he does not abolish. Is that, is that what your translation says? He does not abolish the Old Testament or the law and the prophets. So Jesus, in his own words, did not want to do away with the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. So Jesus viewed himself as not in contradiction with the Old Testament. Hear me on that point. He did not diminish. He did not disagree with. He did not distance himself from. And he he did not disregard the Old Testament. And if you do that, you are not a true red-letter Christian. You're not a faithful disciple of Christ if you're diminishing his word in that way. Do you see that? That's what he's getting at here. If you're rejecting the Old Testament or diminishing the Old Testament, you're going against the direct teachings of Jesus about how to be a disciple. And he's saying, you're not faithfully walking with me. Jesus is abundantly clear on this point. Therefore, we can't claim that just because Jesus didn't speak to a specific teaching in the Old Testament, that we can disregard that teaching in the Old Testament. Hang hang with me on this logic. Are you tracking with me? He's speaking about the Old Testament. I didn't abolish it. So so he's saying that, listen, everything in the Old Testament, I'm not teaching in contradiction to any of it. Do you see that? So so based upon Matthew 5.17, Jesus did not have to speak to everything written in the Old Testament in order to affirm everything written in the Old Testament. You understand what I'm saying there? There are all sorts of things written in the Old Testament that Jesus doesn't speak to. And he's plainly saying here, I don't disagree with any of it. I'm not not abolishing any of it. Let me give you an example. Now, this is a gross example, okay? So, moms, if you want to cover a couple of years here, feel free to do that. This This is a gross example, okay? Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, 23 forbids bestiality. Now, if you, go, if you don't know what that is and you Google it, just don't look at the pictures, okay? Go to a definition. Leviticus 18.23 forbids bestiality. Jesus never says anything about bestiality. Now, according to the logic of the red-letter Christians, this would mean that Jesus is maybe okay with bestiality. That's crazy. Are you with me? It's crazy and it's unfaithful based upon this text. Hear me, brothers and sisters. 
Jesus is not okay with bestiality, even though he never said anything about it. And hear me, Matthew 5, 17 means that he doesn't have to. Are, are you tracking with the logic here of Matthew 5, 17? He doesn't have to speak to everything in the Old Testament in order to affirm it. Why? Because Jesus did not, quote, come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, well, why did he come then? Did he preserve the Old Testament unchanged? Well, no, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. The key to reading the Old Testament is that word that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He doesn't abolish them, but he also doesn't leave them unchanged. He takes them to their intended end. So he doesn't preserve the Old Testament unchanged. There's certain things in the Old Testament that, listen, we don't sacrifice goats and animals anymore. We, we don't do the, the rituals like they did at the temple. All that stuff has changed, but it's not because Jesus is somehow in contradiction to that or that was somehow wrong back then. Jesus fulfills. The Jesus principle is that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. This means that he brought the Old Testament to its intended goal, to its intended aim. In other words, all of the Old Testament is headed in a Jesus direction. It's all headed towards him. He is the aim of it. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the completion of it. He's the intended goal of it. According to Jesus, he is the aim of the Old Testament. He ushered in a new covenant that was not in contradiction to the old, but also he didn't leave the old unchanged. Rather, he fulfilled it. Does that make sense? So, so if we lived 3,000 years ago, before the time of Christ, we, we would in, interpret the Old Testament in, in a certain way. But now if you fast forward today, something happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus happened. And so we believe the same Old Testament Scriptures, but we interpret them a different way because Christ has fulfilled it. He doesn't leave it unchanged. We have to run it through this Jesus grid. Okay, let's circle this for the rest of, for the rest of our time together. What does it mean to, that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament? He's going to give us three more verses to explain this. First, I want you to understand that Jesus esteems the whole Bible. Verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Jesus principle includes esteeming the Bible. So Jesus... His approach was not to lower biblical standards in order to make it easier to get over them. Rather, Jesus' approach is actually to raise the standards. You see the need, and then you turn to him in your need. But the way he gets there, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, that all the Bible is so authoritative then even the smallest components of words are authoritative. So, so iotas and dots, these are these, uh, these aspects of certain Hebrew words. These are like the, the smallest component parts of these. So Jesus is saying that even those small uh, component parts of words are also authoritative. The jots, the tittles, the iotas, the dots, all of that is authoritative. So Jesus didn't divorce the heart of the law or the principle of a passage from the details of the specifics of words and verses and letters and parts of words. To Jesus, he felt like the details mattered. Do you see that there? So what Jesus does not do is say, well, the principle is this. Don't worry about the details. Jesus got the principles, 
but he did it on the basis of the details. Jesus doesn't divorce words and paragraphs and sentences and books from the principles. He doesn't say, go love someone, and then you fill out whatever you think love is. He gives a whole Old Testament explaining it. He gives all these details explaining it. So we can't divorce the principle from the details. Jesus brings those two together. In fact, the principles that he establishes are built upon the details. Jesus is not saying also that we're to fight over the iotas. <laughs> He's not saying that, okay, all these little principle parts that come together and, and, and build you know, the, the principle. He's not saying, okay, we're supposed to, to fight over all this. stuff, and, and that's not to say we're not to have honest debate on different of opinions on this. But we're not supposed to twist things around in order to really get to where we want to go. I want to get to this position. So I'm going to grab this first, but I'm going to reject all this. I'm going to reject these details, and I'm going to kind of fill in the blanks here of what I think this principle is, and I'm going to get to where I need to go. Jesus is fundamentally rebuking that. Further, Jesus taught that all those component parts of words, they, they fit together into words and sentences and paragraphs and books and ideas and theological truths, and all, this, uh, comes, uh, and all this comes together to build out what we understand to be true. And further, uh, he, he does all this and says that he fulfills it all. Jesus was esteeming every aspect of the Bible, not diminishing it. I'm not saying that that's easy to do, okay? Jesus holds high the Scriptures. And I'm not saying that there aren't parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand. <laughs> There's parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand. There's parts of Scripture that you say something and you're like, whoa, that's hot. Okay, I don't know what to do with that, right? Like, I'll go back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20.10 says that adultery was to be punished with capital punishment in ancient Israel. Woo. Now, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I don't think we should have state-sponsored capital punishment on someone who commits adultery. I don't think that. Now, here's what you need to hear, though. Okay, well, how do you get that to position then? Well, that's where the work needs to be done, right? Like, I don't get to that position by saying, Leviticus doesn't really matter today. Don't worry about Leviticus 20. It doesn't really matter today. Okay, let's be clear. The Bible doesn't say adultery is good, right? It doesn't say, okay, there's this admonition in the past. This is bad. This is sinful. But today, forget that. It's actually okay. Like, it's actually good, you know. The Bible doesn't give us the freedom to do that. Rather, what it says is we've got to run this through a Jesus grid. We've got to understand this according to the gospel. We've got to understand this according to Jesus. Listen, God still hates adultery. Some of you have suffered the effects of that, of that sin. God hates that. Jesus actually raises the standard of the law, right? Like, like listen, Jesus doesn't want us to commit adultery, but actually Jesus also says that he doesn't want us to lust. He gets to the heart of the struggle. So the gospel, but the gospel doesn't stop there. It doesn't just say, okay, don't commit adultery and don't lust. The gospel goes further than that. The gospel includes ways to battle lust, right? Like, it doesn't just condemn adultery and lust and leave it there. The gospel says, listen, Jesus forgives you of that. If you've committed that sin, friend, no, Jesus covers that with his blood. Jesus forgives that. Like Jesus loves you enough that, that he died for that. He shed his blood in order to pay for that sin and to forgive you of that sin. Like That's the gospel. 
It's not that, okay, you got to go be perfect and reach up to God, and if you've made this mistake, man, you're not welcome here. It's that, listen, Jesus forgives you of that because he's atoned for that. And then there's this crescendo to all of this is that that sacrifice is so complete that it continues to cover you and that it holds you secure in Christ as well. It's like, even though you're a sinner, you've been put in here because of the blood of Christ, and God has closed his fingers around you, and nothing can pry those fingers away. You are secure in him, and it's not because of anything that you've done. He knows what you've done, and he just continues to give you grace for it. That's the Jesus principle. That's how we get there. It's not saying Leviticus doesn't matter anymore. It's understanding Leviticus and then really understanding Christ in light of it. Jesus taught that we're to esteem all the Bible. If someone is disregarding a passage or lowering a biblical standard, they're doing the opposite of what Jesus taught. The Jesus principle is to esteem the whole Bible as the inerrant, authoritative Word of God. Next, I want you to understand Jesus is warning against diminishing the Bible. He's going to give weight what he's just said. Verse 19 says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus is adding some weight to what he's teaching here. There's some uh, interesting word plays in the Greek between abolish and, and relaxing. The ESV uses relaxes, but your version might say breaks or sets aside or ignores or nullifies. All those are fine terms for it. But Jesus is referencing those who diminish uh, the Bible in some way. That's what he's getting at. He's saying, listen, those who have diminished it in some way, and we can diminish the Bible in a number of ways, right? Like we can have kind of this whole built out theological system that lowers the Bible, like the red letter Christians or the progressive Christians. They have a whole theology, books on this, seminaries built on some of the ideas where they can accept certain uh, scriptures and reject other scriptures. So that's a way to diminish it. But also we can lower the standard in such a way to where we can just say, you know, I'm just going to ignore these standards because I, I want a low bar in order to get over and feel good about myself. Sometimes we can just break these standards and totally disobey them and totally disregard them. Sometimes we just ignore them and set aside. All of those things are examples of diminishing God's word. Therefore, Jesus wants us to hear this warning against diminishing God's word. Jesus is saying that, listen, people who do that, maybe functionally, or maybe they have this built-out theological system to it, either one of those people who do that, they're not faithful disciples. They're not great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we shouldn't view them as leaders. We didn't view them as thought leaders. Friends, we shouldn't listen to their podcasts. We shouldn't read their books, okay? Jesus is saying they're least in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, I would go so far as to say that actually what I think he's saying here is they're so low in the kingdom of heaven, they might be outside the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? That's, that's how Jesus views them. But the solution is to exalt the Bible. And exalt it in a couple of ways, by teaching it, but also obeying it. Like for some of us, it's easy to explain it and understand all the nuances of the Scriptures, and we can check these doctrinal boxes. But also, disciples obey it. Like, like we apply it, we, we live it out faithfully. And, and hear me, our generation, 
We are in desperate need of disciples who will exalt God's word and not diminish it. Our generation is in desperate need of disciples who will do the hard work of understanding the Bible in light of Christ and then explaining the gospel, especially to the hard text. Our generation is in desperate need of people who will not just treat the Bible as something to debate, but as this guide for how to live. Jesus is calling disciples to exalt the Bible in order to be exalted in the kingdom. And he gives this warning in order to give weight to his point. The final thing I want you to see is, is I want you to understand that Jesus raises the standard. Look, look, look with me at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So where we've been is that Jesus gives us this Jesus principle, this, this way of interpreting the Bible according to himself. And he says, listen, I, I'm not rejecting the Old Testament. I'm actually fulfilling it. I, I'm its intended aim or end. I'm not diminishing it. I'm esteeming it. Every part of the Old Testament, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant it are, it's all fulfilled in me and it's all valuable. And Jesus, he, he didn't reject the specifics in order to emphasize a principle, but he upheld the specifics in order to firmly establish the principle is what he's doing here. And, and further, he warns against those who don't follow his teachings here. He warns and says, listen, they're not leaders. They're not great in the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're, they're uh, low in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here, he's raising the standard. And the final piece of the Jesus principle is to understand that Jesus increases the standard. He, he raises the standard. Now, he references scribes and Pharisees here. Now, if, if you remember scri scribes and Pharisees in the Old Testament, like they were the religious zealots, right? Like they were righteous people, right? So they were the ones that people looked to as the standard for how to be religious. So they prayed at certain times. They ate at certain times. They attended certain holidays and religious festivals. They didn't touch certain things. They didn't say certain things. They didn't go certain places. They sought to live righteous lives. And listen, he's saying that the standard's actually higher than them. Like look at them, all the things they do, all the things they don't do. I'm raising the standard. But if you think about the Pharisees and the scribes, it was primarily outward works, right? Do this, don't do that. Eat this, don't eat this. But Jesus cuts to the heart. Jesus cares about the inner man, the inner affections, the inner mind. He goes inside. That's where the, the raising of the standard happens. It doesn't just matter what you do on the outside, and hear me, it matters. But it also matters on the inside, okay? Do I need to be clear on that? Jesus is not saying, it's okay to murder. He's saying, don't murder. But Jesus is saying, but don't hate on the inside. And so what Jesus is getting at here is this inner, deeper spirituality where he raises the standard. Don't murder, but also don't hate. And so he's saying, get into that, that, that spiritual level where, where, there's, where your piety matters. Faithfully obeying the gospel it means that you then have the freedom to live according to the power of the Spirit. So he's not just saying, like the Pharisees, and listen, some of the Pharisees, I, I promise, if they were here today, they, they could do religious things at a higher moral level than most of us could, okay? But, but, but they're doing it in their own strength. He's saying, no, I, I want you to rely on me. He's saying, I, I want you to go on the inside, do that spiritual work of taking every thought captive. I, I, shouldn't be, 
I shouldn't be thinking about that. And he's saying, go on the inside and mortify the desires of the flesh. This thing keeps coming up. I'm going to battle it. I'm going to fight it. And then he says, yield to the power of the Spirit. If you're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. So you go to prayer and you say, these thoughts have come up again. I hate this, that I'm battling it. Spirit, help me. I can't defeat this on my own. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Not just showing up at the certain festival, saying the right word at the right time. Something deeper, more profound, more beautiful. Jesus raised the standard from just casting a vote or holding a political position to truly walking with God. That's the standard that he raises us to. The final piece of the Jesus principle is to understand that Jesus raises the standard. Matthew 5, 17 to 20 in this Jesus principle, it forces us to ask some questions, right? Let me ask three. Number one, are you diminishing the Bible? Are you diminishing the Bible in some way? Now, friend, maybe this is some sort of built-out intentional theory that you've developed or accepted. Many progressive Christians and red-letter Christians, they fall into this error. This passage is calling them to repent from diminishing the Bible in some way. But, but it goes further than that, right? Like we can diminish in other ways. Like sometimes we can just avoid certain topics. We can avoid certain hard sayings. Like for some of us, we love the Psalms. I'm one that loves the Psalms. But I can say, I love the Psalms, but I don't really like that crazy apocalyptic stuff. So we spend all our time in the Psalms and we never read Revelation. Or we can diminish the Bible where we can like love doctrine and we can love books like Romans and Ephesians. But the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, that doesn't really help me. Like we can functionally diminish the Bible in other ways. Friends, make the Bible, all of the Bible, foundational to your spirituality and to your thinking. And finally, we can diminish the Bible by only focusing on the outer behaviors, rather pushing deeper into issues of the heart. Jesus always cuts to the heart. Are you capturing your thoughts? Are you battling, mortifying the flesh? Are you, are you yielding to the indwelling spirit? The second question I think this passage forces us to ask is, are you leaving the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, unchanged? What I mean is, are you reading all the Bible according to Jesus' gospel of grace? Even the strange Leviticus stuff. Do you read it according to the gospel of grace? When you read a passage, are you asking, okay, how is Jesus the hero here? When you read a passage, are you asking, okay, what's the good news of this passage? The the third key question is, uh, and related to all of these, is are you making Jesus your aim? You see, Jesus is the aim of the entire Old Testament. This is within the context of his disciples, how to be disciples, Jesus says, I fulfilled all the Old Testament. It it all leads up to me. If that's true of how we're supposed to read the Bible, isn't that true of how we're supposed to live our lives? Like, are are you seeking to make much of Jesus in in this season's trial? Whatever trial you're facing in this season, is it causing you to trust Him more, to love Him more? Are you making Him your aim in this trial? Are you saying, This trial and His sovereignty has been brought into my life. It's painful. I don't want this. And Jesus, how can I draw near to you in this? Is He your aim in it? What what big decision are you making right now? Is glorifying Jesus the aim of that decision? Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. All of this crescendos up in Him. Jesus changes everything. 
Jesus is the aim of everything. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the high note. Jesus is the loudest song. He's the most beautiful of all. He's the glory of glories. All of the, the, he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. All of that is directed in finding its fulfillment, its crescendo, its, its completeness, its end in him. See Jesus as the aim. Matthew 5, 17 and 20, it, it teaches us something about how to read the Bible, certainly. But I think uh, related, I don't know if it's more important, but at the same level, it teaches us how to live our lives. So instead of picking and choosing what we want to believe, like the red-letter Christians, we're, we're to follow the Jesus principle, which means we embrace the entire Bible. But instead of trying to implement the Old Testament like it was implemented in Old Testament Israel. We're to run it through the grid of Jesus, the, the lens of Christ. We're not to apathetically gloss through reading the Bible. We're to go back to Jesus and understand that Jesus is the aim. Jesus doesn't want you to be a red-letter Christian, but a whole Bible Christian. Do you see that? And, and friend, I think it's difficult to be a, a whole Bible Christian. I don't think that that's easy in any way. And listen, no matter if a Christian lived 500 years ago, 100 years ago, they lived in Africa or Asia or America, every time period that they lived in, there's always pressures from the world and some sort of biblical ethic. It's always easier to cherry pick what you want to believe and reject the other stuff. It's difficult to be a whole Bible Christian the world, the workplace, all of those things will put pressures on you to deny certain parts of the Scripture. But you're going to have to deny the fleshly desires. You're going to have to love when it's hard to love. You're going to have to forgive when you don't want to forgive. Let me close with this. I met a pastor this week that had an unbelievable story. I mean, I just I couldn't believe it. He grew up in a real impoverished part of New Orleans. And... The story is, is the police were having uh, trouble closing a murder case. And long story short, there's some twists and turns to it. Uh, but my buddy um, was falsely accused uh, by, by a group of police officers, dishonest police officers that framed him for murder. We're not talking traffic tickets here, okay? And so he's off to jail, terrified, okay? And he didn't have the resources to, to get a good attorney to help. And so, I mean, he's... He's going, he's going to prison, okay? Murder charge. So by God's grace, his family, you know, they started asking everybody, is there someone that can help? Do you know an attorney? Some attorney, uh, attorneys helped him for, for free. They dug into the case. They found clear evidence that he did not commit this. He was innocent. Long story short, through the evidence, uh, he, he, was finally, he was finally free. So he was in this situation. The people in his community that were charged, I think by God even, to administer justice, framed him for murder, and he was going off to jail. This man and his wife, now they're going to be church planters. And so we did a church planter retreat. So I'm, so I'm assessing this guy. I did the preaching part. He was a great preacher. And he tells me, you know, some of these, some of the things that went on. And if you're someone who cherry picks and chooses what you want to believe in the Bible, avoiding certain things, I'm confident you could make a case that I don't really have to forgive those police officers. <laughs> Like, I'm, I'm confident that this man could have slid into bitterness and, and uh, you know, uh, citing all the oppression in our society and these different things. He could have been consumed by that. And, and I'll be honest, I don't know that I would have faulted him for it. But, but he's, a, 
He's a whole Bible Christian. Jesus is this man's aim, and he pushed into it. What's cool where they are now is God's using them in their community in order to be this bridge between police and the community. Like there's, there's real struggles in his community. He's a pastor now in this community. And so he, he works regularly with the police to kind of be this bridge to the community. So when different race riots have happened around the country and, and, and riots against the police, this community has, has been uh, pretty chill in those areas. And it's largely because of this pastor. This man who had been falsely accused of murder by police forgave them. Did the hard work of building relationships in his community to where now there's this harmony in his community as a result of this. I made the comment to him that most people would not go through what he experienced and come out of it the way that he did. So, and so then I asked him, okay, how did you come through all that bad still believing that God is good? Here's what he said. He said, the Bible teaches that everything we went through, that, that, that was the world. And then he said, it, it, it's how the world works, but God gives us something better. God is good, and the future with him is good. That's big, right? Friends, that's where joy is found. That's rich. That's not forgiving the guy that cuts you off in traffic. Like, that's, that's whole Bible Christianity. That's what it looks like to follow the Jesus principle. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. Jesus is their aim. Jesus changed everything. Disciples understand that Jesus is the aim, that he esteemed the whole Bible. Disciples heed the warning to not diminish or disregard parts of the Bible. Disciples don't do that. Disciples understand that Jesus raised the standard, not lowered the standards. Disciples believe that Jesus and they believe the Jesus principle. Jesus makes everything better because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, see Jesus as your aim. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, may we be whole Bible Christians. May we never cherry pick theoretically or functionally the stuff that we want to believe and want to follow and disregard everything else. May we do that hard work of applying the gospel to all areas of our lives. Every Sunday in here, people are, are walking through real trials. Lord, may they not run from you in those trials. May they be whole Bible Christians. See you as the aim and draw near to you in those trials. May you be ever present with them in, today. Father God, Help us to walk faith with you. Help us to be faithful disciples. That's where the beautiful stories come from. That's where the joy is found. It's in Jesus' name we pray.